0: This sermon was recorded at Christ Church Mission, a congregation that seeks to be a people fully alive in God's kingdom. This is a reading from the book of Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Okay, good morning again. We're in the season of Epiphany, as I said, and during the season of Epiphany, we look at stories from the Gospels that kind of slowly reveal to the world who Jesus is, uh, and this is our last week for Epiphany, and, which means that next week we start the season of Lent, Wednesday, in fact. Wednesday, we start the season of Lent, a season where we walk with Jesus as he heads to his suffering and death. So Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. We have services in here at noon and 630. And I don't know if you've connected the dots yet, but if the Chiefs win the game today, the parade and festivities will be on Wednesday. Yes, that's right where the church was already competing with Valentine's Day, but then you gotta throw in the Chief's Parade. Uh, I don't know who I need to talk to at the Chief's organization, but I don't know why Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, a day known for throwing parades and eating you know, gluttonously, why that couldn't be the parade day, I don't know. Instead, we go with Ash Wednesday, a day marked by like penitence and fasting. <laughs> So anyway, we'll we'll be here nonetheless. Hope you might join us noon and 6.30. uh, So it'll be a a meaningful service. You get the ashes. Uh, I hope you can make it. Okay, let me say another thing about Lent. Um, Lent, which starts this week, has kind of a heaviness to it. And we'll still like laugh together on Sunday mornings and the focus of our, of every Sunday, no matter what season of the year it is, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that celebration. And so that will still be a major feature of our time together. But Lent does have kind of a weightiness to it as a season. I just want to kind of prepare you for that and invite you into it. Uh, Lent is uh, marked by introspection and soul searching and it's a 40 day season where traditionally Christians might choose to kind of opt into a new spiritual practice or maybe an amplified version of something that they already practice for that 40 day period to kind of press in to their, uh, to their life with God. It might be a fast from a food or something like that. Uh, it might be a routine practice of scripture or prayer. I'm gonna do I think a daily journaling thing which I've never done before and so we'll see how that goes. Uh, But it's 40 days, and I tend to think that, like, I can do anything for 40 days, you know? And so I I hope, I guess I want to exhort you likewise. Sometimes Lent sneaks up on me. I might have good intentions of starting some kind of new discipline in the season of Lent, and then all of a sudden it's Ash Wednesday, and I feel like it's too late. It's never too late. But I feel like it's too late, and then I let myself off the hook. Anyway, I'm trying to, like, prime a little bit for you. Like, today's Sunday. You have a couple more days. Be thinking about uh, if you'd like to start some practice in the season of Lent. And once you do, if you pick something, then you might even like let someone know, call a friend, text a friend, tell your spouse, like you can shoot me an email. I, I won't like, you know, be too impressed with you or whatever, you know, like, uh, uh, and remember that all of these practices, uh, you know, Lenten practices are not about demonstrating your holiness to God, or by like, earning his favor you know like if you can do something that's really hard maybe God will be impressed it's not has nothing to do with that you already have God's full love and favor it's about remembering Christ's like suffering his path towards suffering and death and the sin that our sin that inspired him on that road and us dealing with that stuff and so I just want to exhort you uh, to do that if you'd like okay that's Lent that starts on Wednesday that's not today Today, uh, on the last season of uh, Epiphany, we have the transfiguration story, which I just read, where Jesus goes up on a mountain with some of his followers, and he's transformed before them. I thought I would do a little something silly this morning. I ordered a book this week called The Gospel According to Gen Z, and, uh, and so it's, uh, we have some Gen Zers in the room, I know. Uh, so if we need a translation afterwards, but I'm going to read this passage of scripture again, but from the Gen Z Bible. Okay. Uh, and so I hope you enjoy this. Here we go. Jesus took three of his besties up a mountain uh and he dropped the hardest reality at it for he had a supernatural glow up and his face and clothes were divinely extra. When they saw this, it altered their brain chemistry. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah were vibing with Jesus. So Peter tried to match their energy and said, hey, yo, y'all trying to chill or nah? Just then, uh, this is my favorite part. Just then, a bright cloud entered the chat and a voice came from it. And the voice said, this is my son. He's him. Let him cook. The three bros were low-key terrified, and Jesus yeeted his glorified era, and Moses and Elijah skirted back to heaven. And as they gritted down the mountain, Jesus told them, gatekeep all these facts you have witnessed until the CEO of life glows back up. The three bros wondered what glowing back up meant, for they still didn't understand the assignment. There you go. Yep. I have the book now, so you might expect this every week, I don't know, you know, just get ready. All right, Uh, I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about white clothes, Uh, I want to talk about Christ's companions, and I want to talk about the word until. I know neither of those, none of those go together, but white clothes, Christ's companions, and the word until. Let's start with white clothes. So when Mark describes the way that Jesus's appearance changed when they were on that mountain, he makes special note of the whiteness and the brightness of Jesus's clothes. The Transfiguration story is in all three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think Matthew makes special, calls special attention to the way that Jesus's face illuminated, but Mark especially highlights his clothes and says that they were so bright, they were dazzling white, he says, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. That's his description. Now you might be thinking, white clothes, big deal. Uh, But what we need to understand is that Mark here is trying to communicate that something truly supernatural, something divine was happening with these white clothes. Because not only was it a miracle in itself that Christ's clothes you know, changed in an instant, but we need to understand that purely white clothes were an almost impossibility in the ancient world. To create them would have been almost impossible, bright white clothes. And even if you could, to maintain them would have been even harder. That old world was dirty and dusty and dingy, and you would never characterize someone's clothes, no matter how white they were in those days, you would never characterize them as dazzling white. It just wasn't a thing. Everyone got dirty and dingy, and their definition of bleached clothes would not be what you think of when you hear the words dazzling white. White clothes were far too difficult to both make and maintain, which is still actually pretty true, isn't it? Like uh, even in our very sanitized world, like white clothes are a liability, aren't they? Like does anybody in here have a, a white item of clothing or two that is like particularly high maintenance that when you go out, you're like, "Should I wear my white thing?" I don't know, you know?) Um, I have this very distinct memory of sitting in band class in the sixth grade, and I sat next to this kid named Ronnie Hughes. And Ronnie, I remember one Christmas, got uh, like all white dicky pants, you know, like creased up dicky pants. They were looking, you know, and he knew it and his parents knew it too. So Ronnie, when he came into band class, would sit down and he brought a stack of paper napkins with him wherever he went. And so he would sit down in the metal folding chair and then lay out the the uh napkins over the tops of his legs so that he could rest his arms there and it wouldn't mess up his white dicky pants you know uh last week I accidentally got a drop, like a big drop of wine on one of our little white purificators up here and the moment it happened, I was like, oh shoot. Like, you know, cause I just know how hard that's gonna be to get out and that Jana is gonna have to work on it, you know, and so uh, it is just still a thing. White clothes even today are a problem, but in the ancient world, Clothes described as dazzling white, brighter than anyone could possibly ble- bleach them, that was supernatural and divine. What's the significance biblically? Uh, why, did, uh, why was the transfigured Christ like appearing in dazzling white clothes? Well, white clothes have a couple of different significances in the Bible. One, uh, there are references, a few references to angels wearing white clothes in the New Testament. <clears throat> those messengers of God appearing in white clothes, both at the resurrection and the ascension. So that's John and Acts. Um, they record, the, they, they note, they describe those angels as wearing all white Uh, But it wasn't just angels uh, that are recorded as wearing white. God himself is described in scripture as having like white clothes, dazzling white clothes. In the book of Daniel, Daniel has this vision of heaven. And in it, he describes what he sees there. And he says this, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. So when Christ was transfigured with these dazzling white clothes, he was signaling to those disciples his very divinity, his connection to the Almighty God. But it isn't just angels and the Lord who are recorded as wearing white clothes in Scripture. In the book of Revelation, John was having this Picture this revelation of the future kingdom of God. And in it, this is what John describes. This is the image that John uh, records. He says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Uh, John goes on just another couple verses later same chapter just a couple verses later then one of the elders John says spoke to me Who are these people dressed in white robes? He asked. Where did they come from? I answered Sir, you know, this is a funny exchange in the Bible where like an elder in heaven asks John the question and John is like Why are you asking me who the white-robed people are and uh, the elder says? They are the ones who have come out of the great time of terrible suffering. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Christ's sacrifice has purified them. It's a fascinating image, right, of like robes being made pure white, but by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's this old prayer that I like. Um, it's from like the third century. It's called the Tadeum Tede- Laudamus, uh, an ancient prayer of the church. And it's a pretty long prayer, uh, but I'll read like just a, a couple lines for you. It says this. It's, so it's a, it's a hymn, really, and it says this. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The noble fellowship of prophets praise you. The white-robed army of martyrs praise you. Throughout the world, the Holy Church acclaims you. Father of majesty unbounded your true and only son worthy of all praise the Holy Spirit advocate and guide I think I like this hymn partially because it's kind of Lord of the Ringsy a little bit you know like the noble fellowship and the white-robed army you know like I like it for those reasons but there again we see that white-robed like that this resurrection picture of the kingdom of God as people in these like dazzling white like purity you know Uh, In some, uh, like, in traditional Anglican services, the priests even wear, like, a a white robe called an alb. I have one. I wear it uh, when I'm at the traditional service in OP. And we don't wear them to, like, mirror Christ, the transfigured Christ in his dazzling white clothes. We wear them as this foreshadowing, this testimony of the resurrection life. Dazzling white someday in the presence of Christ. And so at the transfiguration, Jesus, like his clothes were illuminated, dazzling white, pure white clothes. He revealed himself as God himself, and he foreshadowed the pure brightness of the kingdom of God forever. That's white clothes. Okay, let's talk about Christ's companions. So the next part of the transfiguration, first his clothes were bright white, and then the second thing that happened is that these two people appeared with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. The text says that Moses and Elijah appeared before them and they talked with Jesus. And so the first question for us, I think, is why these two? Why Moses and Elijah? And what I would wanna say is that if Jesus were just trying to make a point about his significance and importance, if Jesus was just trying to impress upon the disciples that he had the cosign of like all of the Old Testament, then he wouldn't necessarily pick these two people. He would maybe pick Abraham, you know, the father of the faith. He would probably pick David, maybe the most notable figure in the entirety of Hebrew scriptures. But that's not who he picked. He didn't pick the biggest and best, I would argue. He picked Moses and Elijah. Those two people appeared with him. Why? Well, if we tried to kind of get a like group collective answer of like who of of what Moses's role is in scripture. I think we would probably all come up with something like, you know, he, he led the people to the promised land. You know, he took the God's people from slavery to freedom. That was Moses's primary identity. What about Elijah? We probably know less about him collectively than we do Moses, but Elijah was known in the Old Testament scriptures as this precursor to the coming of the kingdom of God. That was like his reputation. And so both of these persons, Moses and Elijah with their unique roles had a direct connection with Christ and his unique role and what Christ was trying to do. So just as Moses led the people of God to the promised land, Jesus, too, was trying to deliver the people of God to a much better, bigger, more significant promised land. And just as Elijah was a precursor, was like the spark that would start the coming of the kingdom of God, so Jesus was the the beginning and the coming of the kingdom of God that was happening in Jesus. So Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus. They had walked this road before, roads of the coming of the kingdom and the, you know, taking people to the promised land. they had taken those steps before, and now they processed those things with Jesus, who was doing that same role, but on a much bigger scale. Now, last week, I, uh, last week I talked, it was kind of an offhanded comment, but I talked about how Jesus had a personality. Some of you were here for that. And I got several comments about how helpful it was to just remember that Jesus was a person with an actual personality. And similarly, maybe connected to that, I would say that in this passage, as, as Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah, I don't think that what was happening was only for the sake of the disciples, okay? I don't think that Jesus circled up with Moses and Elijah and was like, hey, are the disciples watching us? Like, will you look over? Like, did they see us? Let's just pretend to talk for a few minutes so that they really get how significant I am. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus was... Having a real conversation with Moses and Elijah. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's possible that Moses and Elijah were ministering to Jesus. And we don't typically think about Jesus in that way as needing to be ministered to. But I think this passage paints that kind of picture. He's meeting with them, he's talking with them, he's processing with them, not just for the superficial sake of the disciples, but to to be ministered to, to be prayed for, to be processed with, okay? Those are Christ's companions. Okay, last point. I want to talk about the word until. The word until is in this passage, and I want to to point it out. After the close, and after Moses and Elijah, and even after the section that I skipped, which was that the cloud comes down in intensity and the voice from heaven, this is my son, I skipped all that, but eventually... uh, suddenly everything goes back to normal and it's just the disciples and Jesus standing together. And they begin walking back down the mountain. And as they walked down the mountain, Jesus told them, don't tell anyone what you have seen here today. And if you've read the Bible much, then that line won't surprise you that much because Jesus is saying that a lot in scripture. He's oftentimes telling his disciples and telling different people that he's healed and stuff, hey, don't tell anybody what you've seen or what you've encountered today. It's what we call the messianic secret, which is Jesus, a very simplistic way of thinking about it is that is Jesus like managing like both his revelation to the world and the pressure coming towards him, you know? So Jesus is, uh, Jesus is saying that all the time. Don't tell anybody what you saw here today. But that's not exactly what he says here in this passage. He doesn't say don't tell anyone. He says, don't tell anyone until you have seen the Son of Man rise from the dead. Don't talk about what you saw here on the mountain with the clothes and Moses and Elijah and the voice from heaven. Don't talk about that until you have seen the Son of Man rise from the dead. Now, He's not telling them that to protect them. He's not telling them that because like the heat will be down after the resurrection. You know, like, oh, you'll be safer to talk about this once the resurrection has happened. No, the opposite. It was far more dangerous after the resurrection than before. So the reason uh, was because Jesus knew that it was only after they had seen him suffer and die. It was only after the resurrection that they could make sense of all that they had seen there on the mountain. Yes, they had this amazing glimpse into who Christ was there on the mountain, but they wouldn't really put all the pieces together until they saw him suffer, until they saw him die, until they saw his resurrected body. Only then would they be able to make sense of this episode on the mountain and everything else that they had seen and heard from him. Not until then would they really see him as the wonderful Messiah, the God of the universe, full of love and mercy. He's him. Amen.